Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thank you for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. We would love to have you join us sometime for worship or for a Bible study. So if you have any questions at all, then please reach out to Monte Vista, and we'd love to get those questions answered. Have your Bibles at this time, if you've got one handy, to Ephesians chapter 4. And notice here in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former or your old manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Notice, first of all, from this text, that Paul explains life as two separate halves, the first one being old, the second being new. The difference between these two selves or these two versions of you is like night and day, though they stem from the same person. It's still you, the same social security number, the same driver's license photo, the same last name. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that you change everything about yourself in terms of your physical identity. But there is a transformation that occurs deep down within you at the very core of who you are, that when you become a Christian, something essential changes, not about your social security number or your face or the color of your hair, but something changes about the essence of who you are. And what a great transformation that is. It's a massive uh, transformation. And it takes place in order to change a man from the crude, vile paganism described as the old self in this text to the renewal and the purity of a believer in Christ, even, as Paul puts it, in the likeness of God. Indeed, many of us can witness the alteration that happened in our own lives. We were all slaves to sin at some point. We've all been ensnared in something disgusting and corrupt, whether it's alcoholics or drug addicts, fornicators, adulterers, liars, people who are disobedient to authority, people who are ill-equipped and neglectful parents. We all have faced the consequences of our sins. We've all been trapped by them. 
Think about the old self, the old self that was put away when you made the decision to become a Christian. Or perhaps you're not a Christian, and the old self describes you accurately. Even worse, any one of us just might be dying in his sins and be too callous to desire even a change in attitude. Paul admits this in the text here in the book of Ephesians, being darkened in their understanding. That's the language he uses. Being darkened in their understanding because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That's the essence of the old self. Darkness. Ignorance. Hardness of heart. This is a radio program that I hope all of us will be able to use, both the Christian and the person who is not yet a Christian, going through the process of trying to decide, do I believe in Jesus Christ? And what's at stake if I do or do not confess that belief? And through a careful study of this text in Ephesians, as well as another great text in Galatians that I think serves as a great parallel, I hope that we can come to a greater understanding of the difference between our life before Christ in our life after Christ. And as a quick side note, I'll add this, that for those of us who are Christians already, we need to realize that the old self can creep back into our lives a lot easier than it was to send him away. If we work hard at it, our old habits may die, but the opportunity to sin is still there. And if you're not a Christian, then it's my prayer that you will come to the understanding that your life is not complete that you're living in darkness and you're living in ignorance right now. Existence apart from our Lord is futile, it's calloused, it's empty, and it's rotten. So let's spend the first half of our program looking at the old self a little bit closer. The old self is what was before we were converted to Christ. The old self is the empty shell, the shadow, the man or the woman who you know you used to be. The old self is what we're most ashamed of, what we don't like to admit to other people. And we've all been there. As Paul notes in Ephesians 2 verse 3, just the page before, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. He he says we all formerly lived. There's no exception to that. No exception. We all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were all a part of that life before we chose to bury the old self. Notice from our text in Ephesians that even Christians are in need of reminder every now and then of the life from which they came. No person is immune to the old man. Neither can the effects of that old man ever be completely withdrawn. We have to be on our guard. And I've known from just personal experience and from seeing it in other people's lives that the very moment that you get comfortable enough to say, I'm immune to my sin, that I'm immune to temptation, the very moment that you become comfortable enough to stop paying attention to your spiritual life and you put your guard down, that's when Satan strikes. And that's when the same old temptations come creeping back in. The same mistakes that took you down before will take you down again if you let your guard down. Paul's first description of the old self centers around the idea of Gentilism. 
That is, he clarifies the difference between the old and the new by comparing it to their former manner of life as heathens, as pagans, and enemies of reason. He commands us in Ephesians 4 verse 17 to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Now understand here in the first century context that many of the Christians in the church in Ephesus were probably Gentiles, at least in an ethnic sense. They would have come from pagan backgrounds. They would have been Romans or Greeks or some other ethnicity that was non-Jewish. Such a statement as this, as walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, would ring loudly in the ears of the members in Ephesus, especially those who were personally and intimately acquainted with all the idolatry and the sacrifice and the sexual immorality and even self-mutilation that was characteristic of many ancient religions in Asia Minor. One writer, David Lipscomb, had this to say, that though born Gentiles, Paul distinguishes his readers from the Gentiles who were their natural kindred. So even though they were Gentiles by ethnicity, Gentiles by culture, Gentiles by tradition or history, when they became Christians, that identity was put away. So back in our text in chapter 4, verse 22, as we read earlier, in reference to your former manner of life, and I like the way he puts it in the past where it belongs. It's your former manner of life. The people that used to bring you down, the places, the temptations, things you watched, music that you listened to, language that you used, things that you consumed or took advantage of, that was your former manner of life, and it's not who you are now. And it doesn't have to define you for the rest of your life. It doesn't have to define your future. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Lay it aside. Now, when he means lay aside, the force of the language isn't just the idea of set it aside like you might put your cell phone on the table next to you. Or or set it aside like you'll take your slippers off at night and put them next to you uh, at the foot of the bed. Now, by lay aside, he means to cast aside, to get rid of it, to lay it aside the same way that you might cast something aside as you're going down the road, and you leave it behind forever. You leave it behind forever. You lay aside the old self and never go back to it because it's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And I like that word corrupted, by the way. So when I think of Ephesians 4.22, an analogy comes to my imagination. Most of us probably have trees in our yard, and those trees have to be maintained somehow. And every now and then you notice an entire branch of the tree has died or withered or turned brown, and you look a little closer at it, and it has some kind of infection on it, some kind of corruption, a parasite or a pest of some kind. Now, if you leave that branch on the tree with the parasite on it, What's going to happen to the rest of the tree? Well, eventually, it's going to infect the rest of the tree. It's a corrupted branch, and it needs to be lopped off and cast aside, not kept in your yard, not taken into your house, but thrown away into the garbage can, thrown away for good. Your old self is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. It is rusted, it is moldy, it is spotted, it's spoiled, it's cancerous. And what can describe the sinful life any better than this? 
Is the dismal existence of the sinner anything more than corrupted? In fact, in the lives of some people, sin literally is the cause of physical rot or corruption. Whether it's sexually transmitted diseases or drugs that abuse and destroy the body, even to the point of death in many cases, sometimes our sins do have very physical manifestations. And several other Bible verses describe the sinful man very well. In Psalm 91 verse 3 it says, For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. And as graphic as it is, this description of sin is nothing less than accurate. Sin is a deadly pestilence. It poisons the mind and the body, leading only to death. Sin is like a plague which ravages and consumes all that is good and clean and pure until only death is left standing. Also see Isaiah 5 verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So why would anybody reject something that is life-giving? If you knew that there was a life preserver that could pull you out of the sea, if you knew that there was a cure for the disease that was killing you, if you knew there was a safe haven from the pestilence or the plague, why would you reject it? And I suppose that's a question that can only be answered by the one who refuses to accept salvation. I suppose we get a clue in Ephesians 4.19 where Paul uses the word callous to describe the heart of the old self. Indeed, how hard must a heart be to resist the will of God? One writer put it really well when he stated, Hardening of the heart has been defined as such a suppression of moral and religious feeling as to imply a total disregard of divine calls and warnings and an insensibility to their importance. So do you have a calloused heart? When another Christian approaches me, do I become resentful of the spiritual guidance that's offered? Do I become jealous of the success of sinners or even of my own wealthy brethren? Do I know that I am in sin? but choose to ignore my responsibility? We meet people who are committing adultery, and we might have the same heart, one which does not look at the suffering being inflicted, nor at the consequence of sin. Not only are these people callous and obstinate in nature, but Ephesians 4.18 also describes them as being darkened in their understanding. Have you ever met somebody who fits this description? Someone who's darkened in their understanding? These are the people who are so stubborn in what they believe to be the right way that they can't even see the evidence to the contrary. They might proclaim, well, I know what's best for me, and I know the right way to go through my life, when all the while they're just walking straight toward a cliff. Their thoughts are so clouded by sin, by lust, by fear, by hatred and jealousy that, that they do not, nor are they even able to foresee the terrible catastrophe that awaits them. One could easily argue that the Pharisees and other religious leaders of our Lord's Day were darkened in their understanding. For many of them, the power and prestige of their position was so much more valuable than understanding the coming of the Messiah. They couldn't even understand what Jesus was saying because they were so darkened in their understanding. 
An interesting text that you can study on your own time would be in John chapter 7. We just don't have time to look at it today, but in John 7, in particular in verses 30 through 32, the story shows that many people in Jerusalem saw the signs that Jesus Christ was performing and couldn't deny them that Jesus was performing miracles, and they knew that. In fact, what more evidence could one need? After all, it didn't take the wisest person in the land to come to the conclusion that the Messiah wouldn't perform more signs than those which this man has. And yet, so many people were darkened in their understanding, they just couldn't accept the evidence that was right in front of their eyes. The same thing happened in Acts chapter 4. After the miraculous healing of the man in the previous chapter, Peter and John, two of the apostles, are apprehended and brought before the council of the Jews to answer for their, what they believed to be, false teaching. But when presented with the proof of the miracle that happened in chapter 3, and some of them, to be sure, having witnessed the miracle itself since it was done in broad daylight in front of the temple, the men of the council have no response for the apostles. They even admit, they admit that the miracle is undeniable. But they don't want to listen. This is darkened understanding. How much more dark can a person's mind get? Truly, there is nothing redeeming about the old self. What is most astounding about that life is that it is a life by choice. Paul writes in our text in verse 19, For they have given themselves over to the practice of every kind of impurity. That life isn't taken from you. You're not forced into it at gunpoint. You give yourself over to the practice of every kind of impurity. You choose evil. You choose greed, sensuality, spiritual rot. You choose to be corrupt and to give yourself over to those things which spoil our souls and separate us from God. At this point, it should be clear to all of us what the old self is and what it entails. The difficult part, of course, is not identifying the old self, but doing something about it. It's not enough for us to simply acknowledge that we're sinners or that the old self or the old manner of life was a mess. It's also not enough for us to admit that the old self still creeps back in every now and then. We're told in Galatians 5 verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we think that we're going to belong to our Lord, then we had better take that old man, crucify him with all of his passions and evil habits, and walk as far away from that life as we can. Which leads us right to the second part of our text. You didn't learn Christ in this way, he says in Ephesians 4.20. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay it aside. And then in verse 23 that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God is calling to all of us that we must reject the old self. We must abandon it and accept the new self, which is an identity of renewal and peace, of life and everlasting glory. Other passages in the New Testament also describe this renewal Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10 says, Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, I like the emphasis that's put on there, by the way, that it's not just kind of like laying aside how you feel, like I feel like a new man, or I feel different, or I feel changed. When you become a Christian, you lay aside not just attitudes or feelings, you lay aside the evil practices themselves. 
Your life actually has to change somehow. How you behave and how you act needs to reflect the spiritual change that happened on the outside or the inside. So since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's again Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. Of course, the renewal has to be genuine. It has to be genuine. As simply putting off the old man for show is never enough to save us. In the pulpit commentary, the writer said, We're taught that renewal must be from within, outwards. If there is only one life lingering at the outside, it will never penetrate from thence to the center. But if there is still life at the center, though the old forms may have to be cast away, it will clothe itself in new forms. Change the inside and change the outside as well. Change your heart and your attitude. Change your actions. But another lesson that can be learned from the contrast between the old life and the new life is that no upbringing is so bad and so disgusting that that person can never repent and live a renewed life in Christ. In other words, nobody is too far gone. Maybe you think that about yourself. Maybe you believe that God wouldn't want you saved anyway, that you've just made too many mistakes, committed too many sins, that you're damaged goods somehow. That's absolutely wrong. It was for people like you that Christ died on the cross. People like me. We're no better or worse than anybody else. People are lost in sin. And Christ came to seek that which is lost. Not to give up on it. Not to cast it aside. But to find people like you. Listening to this program right now. Burdened with sin. Feeling guilty. Broken. And lost. And he reaches out to you through the gospel. Gospel is good news. It's the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans 1, verse 16. All of these ideas and all the verses that we've looked at are tied together with the theme of living life anew. Perhaps this is simply an example of the mercy of God displayed gloriously. Perhaps when God looks at your broken life, a life of sin... He doesn't see just the failures. He sees the potential of something that can be rejuvenated. Almost like like when somebody sees a home that's been neglected for many years or abused in some way. There's a damaged roof. There's a window broken out. There's weeds in the yard. A lot of people might look at that and see it as just a headache or an eyesore. What God sees is the potential He sees the potential for a useful, strong, vibrant Christian, a saint who can serve him and work for him in his kingdom. Now, it takes the power of the blood of Christ to save us, to save even the most vile sinners from damnation. Truly, Christ transformed the Gentiles, idolaters, disgusting perverts, people with a taste for animal blood and immoral sexual activities, He took that kind of people in Ephesus and helped turn them into part of his spiritual kingdom. And it was only Christ who could do this. Now consider that our new life is created for only one supreme purpose, 
created in righteousness. What could be more rewarding than saying our entire purpose in existing is to perform the righteousness of God on earth? And that's exactly what the text says in Ephesians 4.24. And put on the new self which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What a purpose. What a goal. There's nothing else more noble than a life that is meant for the righteousness of God. There's nothing else that feels as good as waking up each day and saying to myself, I am a new man, transformed into the image of Christ, living my life in a righteousness that is defined by God. I am holy in his eyes. Now, if you can't say that, then we need to sit down and study some more together. Let me show you from the word what it is that God offers to you in his plan of salvation. So if you have any questions or any spiritual needs, reach out to Monte Vista. Let's get those things taken care of before it's too late. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 930 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montevistacoc.com. Hallelujah.